I was just so like taken back that I was even talking to Karen Carpenter. She called me when I was in Pocatello. I was just home visiting my family. And they called me up and, and I was going, oh. you know, I thought they were just, I thought it was some kind of a joke or something. One of my friends was, you know, like faking, you know, Karen Carpenter's voice or something. But anyway, they recorded it and they didn't take any of the publishing. And I built a whole house on that money. This is Measured Voices. I'm Walt Huntsman. Up next, a conversation with the legendary Steve Eaton. During the next hour, we'll talk about writing songs that mean something. Steve also talks about why changes in the music business aren't all for the best. He discusses his time on the legendary Sandpiper circuit and also talks about his best-known song, All You Get From Love Is A Love Song. Next, on Measured Voices. somebody's love inside Whenever a heart gets broken And the hurt and the pain won't end We'll build them a bridge of kindness To cross with the help of a friend When the words of the wise are spoken Really take them to heart Let's build us a bridge of kindness And now is the time to start Whenever a heart gets broken And the hurt and the pain won't end Let's build us a bridge of kindness Cross with the help of a friend Whenever a heart gets broken pain won't end Let's build us a bridge of kindness To cross with the help of a friend Every cloud that the wind is blowing Is leaving a sky so blue Every tear that cries out for comfort Is calling someone like you
talk a little bit about that song and how that came about for you? Sure. Yeah, I can. Okay. Like right now? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one I wrote, you know, a while back, but it's taken me a while to want to perform it because the older I get, the harder it is to commit all my words that I write to memory. So I'm... Um, I'm kind of struggling with that, you know, but it's nothing that most of us guys that most of us folks that get my age, you know, I'm 71 now, which doesn't seem very old to me, but in my mind, I feel like I'm pretty young, but my body's to tell me something different, you know? <laughs> so anyway, but I wrote that song um, uh, quite a while ago. It's probably been probably six or seven years ago, but I've just been kind of hanging on to it because I, for, uh, only for the reason of like for what I just said, I just it's hard for me to commit all my words to memory. So, um, I, and I wrote it because there was an ad agency in town that was doing a um, a video for a, a, an organization called The Bridge, and that's the name of the song. It's called mm -hmm. The Bridge, and The Bridge is all about um, disenfranchised children that um, are left behind for whatever reason by their parents. It could have been because they their parents got addicted to drugs or they just abandoned the kids or because they got arrested for some reason and had to go to prison. I mean, all, all kinds of things that um, can make your parent, you know, make kids lose their parents. And so the bridge was an organization that wanted to uh, figure out ways to um, find foster parents for these kids. And um, they actually showed me a video of, of a child that, uh, for whatever reason, had lost his parents. And um, he was introduced to a new foster family that really wanted to, wanted to have him come stay with them and, and, and show this child some love. Mm -hmm. And so um, I watched the video and made me cry. And so I wrote this song that they used in the video. I was gonna. I was gonna ask you. I have a whole list of questions because I've been looking forward to this for for a while and yes. thinking about it and planning for it. Uh, I was gonna ask you what inspires you, but coming out of that uh, response, do, are, do you find yourself when you write drawn more to these kinds of I don't know causes, agencies? Um, do those? Well, I've written a lot. Of, I mean, millions of not millions of songs, but I've written a lot of songs that. You know, for every reason, because I want to make money at with my songs, and so I've tried to remain on the commercial side. But but there's a lot of commercial songs out there that are written because of the strong feelings you have for things, you know, which is basically what I've always done. But um, but am I drawn to you know songs that are kind of emotional? Yeah, I, I'm really I really want to write songs now that means something whether it becomes commercial or not uh it's not about the money anymore even though i'd still like to make money off of them but um I, i'm willing to write a song for for a cause that's important you know i like i like to write songs about race racial inequality you know i like to write songs about people that have been disenfranchised i write to i like to write songs about the one i you just heard you know that you know people that are lost their you know their families and stuff you know um i like to write songs about um you know um human rights um all of that yeah i'm really i mean it's important to me now it sort of uh seems like in a way it comes kind of comes full circle back to how uh folk music was in in the 60s yes. 
Exactly. I mean, this day and age with what's going on politically right now, and when you look back in the archives and you look at all of these documentaries and stuff, I mean, even though it seems like it's way worse now, it there's it really isn't. I mean, there's a lot of things that happened back in the 60s and stuff with Martin Luther King and all those people that was just, I mean, he got killed. Kennedy got killed. Robert F. Kennedy got killed. I mean, things that I remember growing up and, th you know, when that stuff happened, I just thought, man, this is like not good. This is like, this could be like the end of our, our world as we know it, you know? And I forgot about those things. And now we got this stuff that's going on politically with them. Um, you know, the, the right wing and the left wing and, you know, the no wing. <laughs> the chicken wing. Yeah, the chicken wing. <laughs> and um, it, it it just seems unacceptable, you know. So when I write these kind of songs, I, you know, I, I often think about Peter, Paul, and Mary, you know, and I think, where where, where have all these pro protest songs? Like where, like, where have all the flowers gone now, you know? Songs like that. And back in you know the 60s which i've you know was had the pleasure of going through you know the, the, i think the music back then was just awesome you know and um and and i think it's awesome now too but you know i i think it's important you know i mean i don't i wish i was a lot smarter in 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 in, in a intellectual way where i could you know speak my mind about like some of these people that I go listen to that are really good writers and good speakers and stuff and people that really influence me and inspire me, great speakers and, uh, you know, men of God and men of, you know, and I'm not like, a, you know, like a born again Christian or something, but I believe in God, you know, mm -hmm. and I believe that, you know, that religion today is actually doing God a disservice and Jesus a disservice because I think they're like really... They're saying things that are totally against how I was raised to think in the Bible, you know, just things that speak against the golden rule and, and all that. But I don't mean to get off in all that stuff, but I'm, I'm just saying that all I know how to do is write songs. And, and, and the reason why I like to write songs, because it allows me a lot of time to think about stuff. I, I, I just can't think on my feet all the time. It's like right now, I'm just kind of mumbling on here. But I can't think on my feet like really fast and, and come up with like all the right words and, and and have it be all truthful and well-founded and well-researched and stuff. But I can do that with my songs. Cause I, I mean, some of my songs I think about for a long time, you know. Well, if, so, if, if that's mumbling, then you're doing a <laughs> you mumble well, you mumble better than most people speak. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll put I mumble and stumble, but anyway, it's 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 the way it works for me. So, on the subject of of uh, music and and the industry, you know, I I came across a story uh, in an interview that you had done a few years back where you talked about the very first song you wrote and you took it over to the radio station and got them to play it. And yeah. uh, the industry has gone through a lot of changes since then. Do you think the, uh, the things have changed for the better, for the worse mix? Well, it depends on how you look at it. You know, I mean, I, I, here in Boise, I've seen you know, everybody's I mean, playing music. There's so many people that are out there wanting to play. And and that's a good thing, including me. I mean, I, I love to play. And I mean, if the truth are known, if nobody would pay me to do it, I'd probably do it anyway, you know. 
I'd become a busker. I'd be out on the street, you know, and just open my guitar case and just playing there. And it, the only thing I would try to do different is I, if I'm playing on the street, I'd, I'd like to be the best guy on the street. <laughs> you know, I'd like to be the one everybody talked about, you yeah. know, just one be, Hey man, you know, I mean, I just think that if you're going to do something, you know, that you, you love to do, then you want to be as good as you possibly can. And I, I, you know, and there's a lot of people out there that are so much better than I am, you know, musically and stuff. But I, I just try to do, develop Steve Eaton. I try to be the best Steve Eaton can be, you know. And there's only one me, so w whatever I do, there's it. I just want to be the best I can be. But um, so the the question is, you know, do I think it's for the, the music business is f for better? No, I don't. I think it's really bad. I think it's like you, there's no way that, you, you know, intellectual property like songs and books and movies and all that stuff is being completely raped because of the Internet. And not, and not the, I don't think the Internet's all bad, but it's just it's turned us all into the invisible man. We can go into anybody's bank vault right now and steal their identity. We can go into anybody's music catalog and, and, and just download it for free. We can find a way to get it without paying for it, you know. Because, and and the way it's gone is not if not as as if that's not bad enough. If people actually are of the mentality where they think it's okay, it's all right to to you know use somebody's song in in your restaurant if it's you know if it's helping draw people in, you know. I mean that's the big problem a lot of restaurant owners have ha are having today is because they they want to have music whether it be live music or even dead music, you know, like Muzak or, you know, music playing. And they, they get all upset because ASCAP comes in and, and tells them, well, you can't be playing other people's stuff. And you're actually make, creating an atmosphere f that from which brings people come in and buy your beer, want to drink your beer and, and your whiskey or eat your food, you know. Um, you have a problem with that. And, and I'm going, well... I understand your point because I, I mean, uh, it makes you so you don't want to pay me. Uh, you don't want to have me come in and play music because ASCAP comes in and bugs you about having live music in, in your restaurant. And I totally understand that. But you have to understand also that like, what, what if you had a recipe that, that was like making you a lot of money in your restaurant and it was people were coming there all the time just because they could enjoy your recipe, your special recipe of some kind of dish that you came up with. And all of a sudden, everybody copied it and started doing it too, you know? I think you'd have a problem with that, mm -hmm. you know? And um, so it kind of it's kind of a weird thing. But um, anyway, th there's no money to be made in publishing anymore unless you get really, 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 really lucky. There's no money in the record business. The, re the, the, re the record companies are still out there, but they don't, they can't make any money because the publishing is gone. They can't. You know, people can instead of going to the record store and buying records, they just that, that that doesn't exist anymore, except for maybe at the record exchange. But there's no record stores anymore. People can just go get it, you know, off the internet. I want to go back to something you were talking about, you know, with uh, live music and ASCAP, and I've heard from a few musicians actually who have who have said that a lot of the the blame for that is on ASCAP for their licensing rates. Is that something where maybe somehow the different sides can come together and, and figure yes. out something? There is. 
I, and I think, and I think a lot of it's ASCAP's fault. But here, what the deal is is ASCAP collects money by intimidating people. They didn't used to have to do that, but it's like, the, you know, the only people out there now that are supporting live music are people that don't have enough money to afford live music, but they still want it. So what happens is if they advertise somebody in the paper, like me or somebody else, and I am an ASCAP writer, soon as he puts something out in the paper, then ASCAP finds out because they have people in like Portland and stuff that, you know, that, that work for ASCAP and they see it in the paper. So they'll go, aha, I better go pay that person or that restaurant a visit because they need to know that they got to, you know, if those people are playing, you know, live music, there's a 99% chance that they're playing cover songs, which aren't their songs or somebody else's songs. And so they come in and, and they want to charge them a blanket fee. They'll talk to the owner and they'll, and, and, and rather than just say, look at, you know, you, you know, that you're, you have people in there that are probably playing a song that belongs to ASCAP that, you know, that we cover and we have, you know, we're supposed to collect money on the behalf of these people. But instead of just working out some kind of formula that would work for them, they just say, well, if you don't pay us this huge amount of money, then we'll sue you and we'll win. Well, that that's partially true but the but the fact is they're not going to sue them because these little restaurant owners don't have any money you can sue the crap out of them but that you know you can't get blood out of a turnip you know and the only people that they would really sue were the big venues where that said you know well we're having a big giant star in here and we're going to make you know one hundred fifty thousand dollars a concert you know you know like at the idaho center or something like that where they have the big big concerts but but those guys will pay because they know that you know that's they got the money to pay for you know for the ASCAP and the BMI royalties and all that. I've had to talk in the behalf. I've had to speak in behalf of places like the Bardney, where they would call up and say you know try to do this intimidation thing. And I've had to call them up and say, hey, look, I'm an ASCAP writer. You know, I understand. I'm I'm on your side, but I'm also on their side because I because they hire me to play. But they're they're not going to hire me anymore because um, because they don't they can't afford the, to pay the royalties and I and I try to tell them and I'll work it out. So I call up ASCAP and I say, look, you you got to change your policy about how you come in and tell these people that you're, you're right. They're right in wanting you know to be paid, but you got to have a different formula now because it's just the uh, you know these little small venues just can't afford to pay somebody to come and play, and then on top of that have to pay ASCAP and BMI just for having live music in there, you know? And they'll say, well, they're going to have to pay us anyway because they do have, if they don't have live music, they got overhead music. And and um, and if they have Muzak, they're paying in that fee that they're paying. That part of that goes to us. You know, they don't know that. But that's what that is how that works. And I don't know if I'm doing a very good job explaining this. but No, that's fine. It seems to me that uh, it's... Uh maybe not exactly cutting off their nose despite their face, but along those lines, because yeah. by doing that, they limit the number of venues where people 
yeah. can go and hear live music and then there's less market exactly less audience and-, and and they always ask me and say well don't you do you see any of the money that i pay into ask you know the, the the club owner will say do you see any of the money that i pay into ask or bmi do you get that money and my answer is yes i do and i have but most of the money that comes from ASCAP and BMI doesn't come from the small venues like that. It comes from the radio stations. It comes from the television stations. It comes from, you know, jukeboxes, which don't exist anymore, you know, because now everybody just listens to their iPods, mm-hmm. you know. So, um, I mean, it used to be that w- w- back in the day before the Internet stuff, if you got any of your songs played on the radio, the, the program director would have to report that and write it write it down and every time you get a song played you get two cents which doesn't sound like very much that's from ASCAP and BMI royalties but worldwide if you got a, a radio station playing your song it's a hit song um, all over the world paying you two cents every time they spin play your song that's where the real money is you know I mean I used to make over a hundred thousand a year when the song I wrote for the Carpenters all you get from love is a love song was played and it was all over the world. It was like, you know, it got up to number 10. I mean, think what it would have been if it was number one. And that song was recorded by the Carpenter just before Karen died. It wasn't one of their biggest songs, but it was the last hit song that the Carpenters recorded before Karen died. And over a period of time, I probably made close to, you know, a million bucks for, you know, a 10 year period of time. But I was making between 80 to $100,000 a year for a long time because that song was popular. Well, that's uh, that's uh, that seems like a good transition point here because one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, you've written for yourself, you've written for others like the Carpenters mm. and uh, Lee Greenwood, and, and well, and I always write for myself. I never write for anybody else. I've always written songs for me, but I but I knew that I was in a position where, when I write a song for myself, hopefully somebody else will like it well enough that we'll record. So when the Carpenters recorded my songs, for example, I never wrote it for the Carpenters, but I, but I, uh, what happened was I, I had recorded it for myself um, when I was still signed to another, to another label. To, I was on Capitol. But all the people that re- were involved in that, you know, all the other musicians were all studio guys who were you know, playing. This was in, in L.A., in Hollywood. As soon as they get done playing on my session, they go play with somebody else. And in this case, you know, they'd go over and play on a carpenter's session, you know. And they heard about me just because of all these musicians that, you know, that um, my label, which back then was Cap or, uh, yeah, it was Capitol Record. They, you know, they they were paying for like these real high-powered musicians to play on my demos and on my records and stuff. And if they and if those musicians liked what I was doing, they'd go to the next session and talk about it. And to, you know, that's basically how I got all my songs cut. It's all about you know spreading yourself out into a community. And and um, there's a word I'm trying to think about it, but um, that would describe that. But anyway, it's it's like that, you know. So do you do you have a of, of all the songs that you've written that other artists have covered? Do you have a favorite? Uh. Or a favorite version that somebody's known? Well, when the Carpenters recorded my song, I liked my version better. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just because I, you know, I mean, I recorded it the way I wanted to. But I, I was, I mean, believe me, I'm so grateful that they did it. They called me up and said they wanted to record it. And I, and I, it was the first time I ever talked to Karen Carpenter. And I've never met her in person. She called me on the phone one day. 
and told me they were going to record that song. I couldn't believe it. And I, I, you know, it's another whole other story how how it actually got to them. I mean, it was some other they they knew about it, but from some other musicians that pl that played with me on my demo session. But she they called up and said we want we like the song we were going to record it and it's going to be on this uh this album that we're doing called Passages, and uh, but but we want to change one of the lines in the chorus. And I was going, oh, here we go, man. They're going to want to have half the publishing, you know. That's what they're trying to do. And, and I would have given it to them, you know. <laughs> but she said, no, we don't want we don't want any of the publishing, but we just want to change it from, it's a dirty, my version was, it's a dirty old shame when all you get from love is a love song. It's a dirty old shame when you have to sign your name to a love song. It's a dirty old shame when you have to take the blame for a love song. They go, well, it's a dirty old shame when all you get from love is a love song. And it's a dirty old shame when you have to sign your name to a love song. And it's a dirty old shame when you have to take the blame for a love song. Because the best love song were written with a broken heart. And they wanted to change it. It's a dirty old shame. All you get from love is a love song It's got you laying up nights Waiting for the music to start And it's a dirty old shame When you have to take the blame for a love song Because the best love song Was written with a broken heart Anyway, that's what they wanted to change it to and um, I th and and she t they told me about the change. And I was going, God, I don't know, man. But of course, I said, Yeah, go ahead and change it. You know, <laughs> but, but why do you think that's better than mine? That's what it was going through my mind. But I was just so like taken back that I was even talking to Karen Carpenter. She called me when I was in Pocatello. I was just home visiting my family, and they called me up, and, and I was going. Oh. Yeah, I thought they were just, I thought it was some kind of a joke or something. One of my friends was, you know, like faking, you know, Karen Carpenter's voice or something. But anyway, they recorded it and they didn't take any of the publishing. I built a whole house on that money, you know. So anyway, that's. And you've, that's uh, you've raised uh, four kids, I, I believe. Is that right? Yes. And now your son, Marcus. He's making a, a name for himself uh, in in music, yes. and your son AJ is uh, he's kind of in working, the film business, yeah. working on a documentary about uh, David, David Crosby. Crosby. Mm -hmm. and has he shared with you when that's coming out? Well, yeah, it's, he hasn't given me a drop dead deadline, but it's it's just been a work in progress for a long time. He's been out there just really working on this thing, and and they're they're both you know they both have been you know re really struggling you know and. I worry about them all the time because they're both extremely talented, but man, this is really a tough business, man. I, I worry more about Marcus than I do AJ, even though he's in a very tough business too, but I don't know. I think there's, you know, they, the internet hasn't got to the movie business as much as it's got to the music business. And Marcus, man, he's, I mean, he's just an incredible, incredible writer and an incredible guitar player you know he's just he's way above me i mean he's just raised the bar up way far 
but uh, he, you know he's just in this day and age man unless you just get on national tv or something and just do something to get a huge splash for yourself in front of a huge audience somehow you know it's just very 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 difficult he's trying to do it all by himself and he's doing a damn good job for you know kid that you know i mean he's you know he's struggled all the way and he gets all these great jobs in italy and he goes over there and hangs out and plays his guitar and he's got a big following but he just has yet to hit that big big sweet spot that'll put him over the edge where you know i mean i that i think he can make enough income to get himself down the road and maybe, you know, make his mark, huge mark. I mean, he's made a huge mark already, but in order for him to like be able to really support himself and a family and all of that, he's going to have to hit the big one, you know? And then today it's almost like trying to win the lottery, if not harder. It seems like there's, there's sort of a, a curve where you write because you love it. And then you try to write and record to make it mm-hmm. and then if you make it then you can come back down the other side of the curve where you can do it again simply because yeah. you love it not because you have to yeah. try to make well, it well it's kind of like david crosby you know i mean he was you know he was working at a time where uh where, where, where you could make money off the record business and publishing was a huge thing i mean that guy i, I don't know if people know this but man he's made more money off publishing than probably anybody i can think of except for maybe carol king you know um, and still getting money today, I'm sure of it, you know. And he's went down the, you know, he's he's dodged a lot of bullets healthy wise, you know, mm-hmm. and health wise. Plus, he's been in trouble with the law, and he know, you know, everybody knows that, you know. I think he had to go spend some time in prison, and uh, he was a drug addict, you know, and he, he had to go all through that stuff. And um, and now, but but because of his past, you know, royalties and stuff, he's still. He's still going to be okay, and he'll be okay till he dies. And probably when he dies, his wife will be okay, you know. But um, right now, he's not selling any records. I mean, he's selling way more than I am, (laughs) that's for sure. And he can still go out and make a lot of money off his concerts, but not anything like it used to be when he was with Crosby, Stills, and Nash, you know. I mean, they can still make pretty big money selling, you know, going playing in concerts and stuff. They can get, you know... You know, two or three thousand people come here and play, and they'll pay twenty five, thirty bucks to get in. So you know, they're make they can still do that, but David's not a, a spring chicken anymore. You know, that's tough on him to go out. I couldn't do it anymore. You know, it's hard. Well, and then you have the what the Rolling Stones, who are all not quite David Crosby's age, but in that general ballpark. Yeah, too, yeah, man. sure. I mean, there's quite a few people out there that that. You know, made their big name for themselves a long time ago in the '60s and '70s, and still can you know can draw a crowd and come people come here and play. But that's pretty much what's left in this business anymore, man. It's just playing out, you know, and doing shows and stuff. But the big money's gone, man. I mean, you know, it's just like you see the, a lot of people coming to the knitting factory. They have these buses, you know, but that's just a big show deal, you know. They 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 get the buses. They're on a contract, and I think a lot of them are under contract to the knitting factory. They get to travel in these, like, you know, these big, you know, star buses, so to speak. But, I mean, those buses cost a lot of friggin' money to be out there, you know. It's two or three grand a day, you know, to have them out there. And uh, and then, you know, they got to make some enough money to pay for that bus. And I don't think, you know, I think they're, they're lucky if they break even, you know. So 
we were talking about the internet and about record companies earlier. And I was wondering your thoughts on, uh, you, you mentioned that, that it's a lot easier for people to get money or get music without paying for it. Uh, how about from the flip side, as far as artists and songwriters getting their music out there because they no longer have to go through that middleman of the record company, uh, is that a well, plus? I mean that that was the only way you could. You know, the middleman was the was the exact way to get your stuff to people because that's what they did. I was just like the record company was basically that. I mean the record company, what they would do is if they signed you, you know they made sure that they were you know they wouldn't give you money up front to record your 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 album your record. They they have a budget. You'd have what they call you know you sign a contract and they give you sometimes fifty to hundred grand to record. You know, back, you know, that's what we got when I was in Fat Chance. And when I did a, a thing for uh, on my, after I left Fat Chance, I got signed to Capital. And they get, I had a budget of about $40,000, you know, to go into a studio and get all these people, all these really great studio guys to come play with me and, you know, record my album, my Hey Mr. Dreamer album. And then, the, you know, under the contract, they'd say, well, um, before you make any money f from the sale of this record, we got to sell enough to pay our investment back. So right off the top, we're going to get our $40,000 back plus interest. You know, we, we're going to pay ourselves back, which, was, you know, it's just like going to the bank and mm -hmm. they're saying, you know, we want to get our money back, you know. And um, so how they would do that is they give you the money to do the project. And then the first money that came through the door, they were taking it all until they got to the point where they paid themselves back. And then they'd do the split where, you know, so now we're, we've, we're even, we got our money back. So from now on, every dollar that walks through the door, we're going to give you 50 cents and we're going to get 50 cents. That's kind of, you know, it's, it's not exactly like that, but that's pretty much the formula. So it sounds like the internet has changed things for people who aren't interested necessarily in having other people do their music because they can get their music out there. But it sounds like it's had a, a, a bad effect then on people who write songs that would love for other people to consider recording them. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants to, you know, get their stuff on Spotify and iTunes and all that stuff. You know, I, I've done it and, you know, because they know that's how you're going to get your stuff heard. But, you know, iTunes will sell your song if it's, you know, your song for, what is it, 99 cents or something like that. Or But they put the price on it and then they decide what you're what they're going to give you out of that. You know what I mean? You don't even you don't have to, you, you don't even have to sign to them. They'll just say, you know, send me whatever you got. We'll play it, you know. But the only way you're going to sell it, get it sold, is if you become famous and then all of a sudden you, you create your own audience and then they're going to buy it. But no matter what, if they buy it from us, it's going to, we're going to set the price on it. And we're going to set the price on how much we're going to pay you. And, and they're, you know, they're, they're called a quote record company. But uh, to my original thing about record companies, back in the day, they did everything for you. They get a manager for you. They would get your gigs, you know, line you up with gigs. If they had an artist that was doing really well, they would put you out on the road with them and make let you be the opening act. So the you know so that you could get in front of a, an already made um, audience, and 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 um, you know that was the Nora Jones thing. You know that happened. Um, she was out on I can't remember she she was on a road with somebody, but. Um, 
you know, so she had an audience. Or, and, and the key was, you know, if you're going to get an opportunity to be in front of all these people who, who are actually here to see somebody else, you better make damn good and sure that you're, whatever you do is going to be as good as what they do. So they're going to go right back home and buy that record, buy your record. And that's how, that was a formula, basically. That's what they used to do. And then the other thing a record companies would do was they were really big into payola. <laughs> they, would, <laughs> they, would, they would call up the record companies, I mean the radio stations, and say, play this record. What, you know, how much, you know, at first they would pay them money. I said, we'll send you some money to, you know, put this on your regular rotation, play the crap out of this record. This is a new artist and we want to break them. And they try to do it in the big market areas like LA and New York and Mm -hmm. Seattle and Boston and all the major, you know, breakout places. And then all the smaller markets would follow after that. That's how they would make hit records. They just pay people to play it over and over again. If you hated it, the, you know, the first week, second week, you heard it so much that you, you'd probably start liking it, you know, repetition. That's just how it works, you know. But, you know, finally somebody decided that payola wasn't a good thing, and so they'd get, they all got in trouble. So what they would do is they said, okay, we're not going to give you money anymore, but we'll give you free records and stuff. And you can, yeah, I mean, it's just, it, that's how it worked out. But, I mean, that was a good thing. You got with the record company, they would do the work for you, and they would, you know, it was meant as much to them as it did to you to get you famous because we all could make money, you know. Now, everybody's on their own, you know. You don't have any support anymore. If you're an independent label, you know, you got to do it all. You got to wear all these hats. You got to be the promoter. You got to be the musician. You got to line up the dates. You got to write the song. You just got to, I mean, one guy can't do it, you know. It's just too, it's really hard. So we've talked about how how the record industry has changed and, and touched a little bit on the local scene. How has, let's go maybe a little more into that, how the, how the local music scene has changed um, since you uh, started or co-founded the uh, Idaho Songwriters Association back in 2010, was it? Yeah, it was about 10 or 12 years ago, but, um, well, nine years ago, I think. Um, well, if I'm understanding the question, um, it, how it's changed for the songwriter is I think we've, we've, we've created, uh, this, and I'm very proud of this. We created, um, a thing with the venues where, uh, where they, they thought it was okay to bring songwriters back in and, and, you, you know, hire them or at least, you know, let them come in and play, you know, and, um, it, it, because, it used to be like when they had the Sandpiper circuit, for instance, that was like one of the best gigs a musician songwriter could ever have because we got to go up there with a the single guitar and sing our songs. And then they could be original songs or they could be cover songs. You know, it didn't matter. But it was a, a big deal for people to just come in and hear one person up there just singing their heart out with their guitar. And, 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 and they'd have them in the bar before they took them in to the, have dinner. So the idea was... The, the the entertainer the songwriter would be out there getting them you know getting them to buy drinks at first but even before they went in and that's where the money was was in the bar and so then they'd go in in to have dinner and come back out and want to hear more songs and buy more drinks you know but it worked out really well and then after you know you know that that whole thing went on for almost thirty years and pretty soon the formula you know it got copied a lot of other people were doing it there was a lot of other restaurants like Jake's and you know, lock, stock, and barrel, and all those people. They thought, man, that's a great formula, and 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 it was really working for us because they, not, they would hire you for more than one night. You could go over there for a whole week, 
and walk home at the end of the week with six, seven hundred bucks, which, you know, I raised my whole family on for a long time. And so nowadays, though, the, the difference is you if you get if you're going to get hired to play, you're only going to get one night and that's it. You know, so then you got to go find another place to play. If you're trying to make a living at it, which most of the people in this town are not making a living at right at being a musician anymore. They all have day gigs, you know, and it, it for most for most of us, except for me, it's a hobby. It's just you just got to do it, you know. And back in the day when I was making a living at it, if I couldn't have done it, you know, if it hadn't been for bars hiring me for two weeks in a row, you know, I'd probably, you know, I would have had to, have, you know, be an insurance salesman in the daytime or something, you know. So that's. So the Idaho Songwriters Association has uh, given a lot of people an opportunity to get their songs out there, myself included. So I thank you for that. <laughs> um, where would you like to see it go? Well, I'd just like to see it, you know, keep doing what it's doing. I I, uh, I think you have to keep it. You have to be creative, though, to, to, to get, keep people's interest, to keep them wanting to come back. And yeah, you have to sh show people some some progress in the, in the way, like when I started it, you know, it was like, I couldn't, I couldn't believe how many people came because I only started, I sent an email to maybe 15 people and 60 of them showed up the first night we ever did it. And so that told me, I mean, there's something, you know, there's something here. I mean, it's something that people want to do. And, 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 and all I want to do is just to have a, a camaraderie with other, I want to see who the other writers were in town and see, you know, see who the good ones were and so the ones that were struggling and needed some help, you know, and it turned out to be, you know, just, People just want to come and have an audience to play their songs. And so, I, you know, it became the forum, which is what Rich O'Hare, that was his idea, which was a good idea. I wanted to call it the writer's sketchbook. I thought that would be better because it's just a sketchbook where you can come out and and, and it didn't matter if, you, if the song was really ready, but you just wanted to try out the ideas mm -hmm. and see the reaction. And, and then you could take that, you know, that reaction home to if, if if everybody says well great song except i think you should do this or maybe they didn't clap well enough or something but a, an indication to, to find out where you were at as a writer you know and then it just got to a lot of people were enjoying it so much that you know like a lot of venue owners were, were hearing about it and even attended like you know when we took it to the y.e plaza man they were just like amazed they thought wow we're getting these people in here. We don't have to pay them anything to be in here because they're just in here wanting to sing for free. Mm -hmm. and, and and they're bringing an audience in here and they're buying our food and drinking our, our you know, our booze and our drinks. And, and I mean, so it got to be the point where I could call anybody up and they go, you know, I can bring in 45 or 50 people, at, you know, to your place if you'll just let us come in here and sing our songs and stuff. They, if they were being an idiot, if they said, nah, we don't want you here, you know, <laughs> we don't need your, you know, and it's just, it, and that's how it worked out. And so that word got out, you know, so the thing I was proud of most of all was just the fact that a lot of people just kind of got turned on to something that w was always a big, was always a good thing, but they just kind of forgot about it. And we just kind of brought that to their attention again. Hey, being a songwriter and bringing them into your venue is a kind of a cool thing, you know? And as far as I know, they still like it. You know, they're still doing it's, it. It's kind of, um, I was just thinking about this while you were, while you were answering. It's kind of organic in a way because it's, it's not like 
even if the song style is like something you might hear on the radio, it's not like what you hear on the radio because it doesn't have all the production production and everything. It's sort of the it's music naked, in its man. pure it's, purest yeah, form. Yeah, it's and that's the way it should be. You know, I mean, some of the best uh, you know songs that I've ever heard on the radio, mostly in co- in the country music business. When I lived in Nashville. When I go to pitch my songs and I go to all of this trouble to like make a really good demo and have good background singing and play the guitar really cool and sing it as good as I could and just do everything I could to make you know them like the song and want to you know pitch it to somebody else. A lot of times, you know, the 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 producer or the the publisher dude would say, you know, Steve, that's a good song. You didn't have to go all that trouble. <laughs> You know, we've heard every, every lick that's known to mankind. You're, you know, you're not going to impress us with your licks. You're not going to impress us with how good of a player you are or a singer or anything. I mean, the best the best demos of most of the ones that get cut by the fame, you know, by Garth Brooks and all the people that were you know, famous back then, are the ones that somebody just came in to say a really good, clear demo and just played a nice guitar. And said, the magic is there, man. That's where it is. You don't have to embellish it with anything. If it's a good song, it will always come through. And I and I believe that. Well, on the on the subject of uh, naked songs, as it were, can uh, talk you into doing another one? I don't know, man. Have you got any money? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Um, Plastic. Here, let's do this. You don't smile like you did before You don't come knocking at my door You keep me guessing more and more Where do I fit in? When candles flickered, we lost the flame Sunny weather has turned to rain Don't know where to put the blame Where do I fit in? I've been anticipating Your love will come back to me Just like when we were together Afraid it's gonna be another blue memory Don't know what I was thinking of I was a fool for falling in I get no answer from the man above Where do I fit? Where do I fit? Where do I fit in? like that song um i've heard it i've heard you do it a few times and it, it, i kind of like that it's got a little uh light jazz yeah, feel to it uh, I, I really like i'm uh I, I still i still got some hope for that song man i got somebody right now i'm gonna think about pitching it too it's 
kind of kind of a fluky thing, but I can't live. I really can't tell you right now because I'm afraid I'll jinx it. <laughs> <laughs> now, you play guitar, you play piano, you've been known to dabble a little bit on the harmonica. Do you have a favorite instrument of those three? No, uh, well, I think the guitar is still my favorite instrument, even though I just love the piano. Um, piano is a little more frustrating for me, even though. You can take any instrument as far as you want to go with it, you know, but I'm too lazy to go as far as I think I could go because in order to be as good as, as I, you know, some of the people I have, you know, that I know that are really good, I, I've hung with those people and I've, they've even played on my stuff, on my demos and on my records and stuff, but they'll tell you that, that that's all they do. That's it. They're they're one dimensional. I so said that you know, like one of the best guitar players I've ever played was this guy named Larry. Or um, oh shoot, now I'm going to blank his name out. Uh, Larry Carlton. He's big jazz. I mean, mm-hmm. any jazz guy will tell you they know who Larry Carlton is. He's probably one of the best guitar players in the world. Um, and I've, I we've had talks, and he's played with me on stuff. And I said, gosh dang man, I just I'm embarrassed to play around. He goes, what? So it wasn't for people like you. I'd have no. I'd have no, nothing to play on because I don't write songs. I don't do anything except play guitar. That's what I what I do. That's my thing. And he says, in, in order to be to be able to play on these high powered sessions and play with high powered people and to be like noted as one of the best jazz guitar players in the world, I th- that's all I do is just play guitar. That's my thing. Um, I've dedicated. I don't do anything else. And so that's that's what I've had to do to be as good as I am. If I tried to be something else, then my guitar player wouldn't be my guitar playing would not be that good. I mean, you take anybody that's really amazing, they've dedicated their life to it, you know. But me, I've I've only gotten good enough to be able to just back myself up, you know, just to you know be proud of you know who I am, and I can back myself up and write my songs, and and that's how I do it. But um, if I wanted to be like Esau Perriman, I'd have to throw my guitar away. I'd have to quit writing songs. I'd have to quit singing. I'd just have to get that violin out and say, "This is it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna explore this instrument to as far as I can take it. But I'm not gonna think about anything else except playing violin." Well, that's uh, still better than where I'm at. I'm, I'm, I'm not even good enough yet to back myself up. So yeah, but you like writing songs. Though, I do like yeah. writing songs, and that's you know that's what you're doing. That's it's a it's a lot of fun. It's uh, it is. It's, uh, I think we're some of the luckiest people on the planet to even do that. You know, I think you're right. I, it has certainly, I think, uh, kept me sane, if not alive. Yeah. Um, well, I've been very lucky, man. I got to tell you that. And I'm really thankful for that. Yeah. So. Do you, when you write, do you write on the guitar then? Or do you write on the I piano? I write both, both on the guitar and piano. You know, sometimes I just write in my head. I'll come up with a premise, you know. Okay. And uh, Do you keep a, a clip file or, or, or things yeah. that, lines or anything that just... Well, now I speak into my phone because I can record in there, you know. But I used to just write on cocktail napkins. Yeah. <laughs> and I still have a collection of those, you know, that I kept. <laughs> Get some of those framed. That yeah. That would be an interesting collage. Well, if that. I was ever really famous, maybe on the Antique Roadshow, that somebody go, hey, man, you know, what do you think this is worth? Steve even wrote that. And <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. Well, speaking uh, in the third person, what what is next for Steve Eaton? I don't know. 
this is the biggest thing I got going right now. <laughs> interviewing me, man. I am honored to, to be talking to you. Well, to be vice versa, man. Uh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, I think, end with a couple of interest. Well, off-topic questions, maybe. Say so you're stranded on a desert island. Okay, what three things would you feel like you had to have with you? Well, I'd have to have my wife with me, and I'd have to have That's my good guitar choice. with me, and I'd have to have something to eat, <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. Oh, there you go. Three important things right there. Yeah. Uh, and, and the wife came out number one, so that's, mm -hmm. always, that's always good. It keeps you in the good graces. Um, okay, one more. So if Hollywood was going to make a, a movie about your life, what would it be called in the Steve Eaton story? Is they've already done with Benny Goodman and Glenn Miller. Yeah, stories. I've actually given that one a great deal of thought. It would probably be called Fat Chance. Okay, and I—I I mean, it would take me a long time to explain that one, <laughs> <laughs> to explain it. But you know, I had a group called Fat Chance, and there's a story behind it, and. I've tried to figure out, you know, a lot of people have asked me if, if you know, my son, AJ, thought, you know, it'd be cool to shoot a movie about it. But he doesn't know enough about me to actually make it work, you know. And he wants to make it just about this one episode that happened to Fat Chance when we were went you know, down to Hollywood. And it's, it's a really good story, but it wouldn't make for a whole movie. But I could use it as a premise to write, you know, some, if I decided to write, you know, something about Steve Eaton. That would be an episode, but um, but I always like the idea of you know I came up with that name Fat Chance because it was kind of like you, you know when I tell people about um, well what are you doing with your life well I you know I mean I want to make it in the movie business you know and and I and I'd hear I even heard people say yeah well Fat Chance on that one you know <laughs> but that was usually some other musician that would say that and I thought. Yeah, well, you're probably right about that because my parents felt that same way. You know, my, my, you know, they were both opera singers. My dad was trying to be a professional opera singer uh, before he met my mom. And he used to travel with this group called the San Carlos Opera Company. I think he did some gigs with them. And he was very, he was a good singer, man. He was a great opera singer. He was a baritone. And, you know, that's probably how I even got interested in music because I was raised around it. You know, my parents were both singing and they sang in church and my dad, you know, was doing a lot of opera stuff. And I had, they had a lot of Mary Alonzo records in my house and I hated all of them, you know, <laughs> but, but I grew up with it. So, you know, I got used to it and my parents would both give voice lessons and that's how they, part of their living was, you know, given, you know, had, they had students. And, uh, my, my mom was also a pretty good piano player too. She could read, she's a lot better reader than I am. I can't read at all. Because I'm too lazy, you know. <laughs> it's just don't bother me with like the real hard stuff. I, I've always taken the roles most traveled. <laughs> well, there's probably a reason the road is most traveled. Yeah, right? well, it's, it's, it's better paved, I can tell you that. <laughs> there you go. Well, I, I want to say that uh, when I first came up with the idea for doing this podcast, your name was number one on the list of the people that I was interested in talking to. So oh. I'm... Again, really uh, thankful and honored that uh, you could find the time to sit down and, and talk for a little bit. Well, thanks, so man. I, I appreciate that. 
And I'm going to impose on you one more time. If you could play us out with a little something, doesn't have to be a whole song. It could be a, a snippet oh, sure, of something. Yeah, if yeah, you yeah. got a little something. think it's time that you're settling down I said maybe I will next time around it all depends if my record's number one but till then I guess I've just begun hey Mr. Dreamer dream on you're chasing your dreams and singing your songs Thanks to Steve Eaton. You can follow him on Facebook. I'll have that link in the show notes at measured-voices.blogspot.com. Join me next time when I sit down to talk with multi-instrumentalist Joseph L. Young, here on Measured Voices.